Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, my guest today is a personal friend. I want to say that up front. I was in Switzerland on a sabbatical leave from Southern Seminary where I had taught for several years. One day the phone rang in the hall. I picked it up. On the other line was a person who said, I am Mark Dever. I am a student at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, but I would like to come to Southern Seminary and study with you. I'd never heard of Mark Dever before, but he did come to Southern. He did study with me did a THM there, and then to Cambridge University where he did a Ph.D., and I've been privileged to know him as a friend and colleague in ministry for all these many years. So, Mark Edward Dever, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Timothy Francis George, it's good to be with you. (laughs) I told Betsy that you would call me by my middle name, so I wanted to beat you to the punch. So, so, Timothy, your listeners should know that you were a superb supervisor. Well, thank you. No one's ever said that to me before. That's not true. This this man, uh, just listeners, you should know, this man did everything from praying with me, being interested in my soul when I was a student. That wasn't always the most common thing that was going on at the seminary. Mm. I were both at then. To also just doing superb academic work. I mean, he he was he was really helpfully academically pushing. So, from stem to stern, from soul to to academic, the, the brother was just a magnificent supervisor. You're so kind to say that. Well, I, it's true, man. I I pray for you because you're the kind of student we have to pray for. We want you to get through the program. <laughs> I'm sure, that's true. <laughs> now, how did you come to the faith, Mark? I know you were an agnostic at one time in your life. Talk about how God's grace reached you in your heart and soul. Yeah, thank you, brother. It's an edifying question. I, I uh, grew up in a kind of nominal Christian family. There was church attendance for a while, and then not church attendance uh, in rural Kentucky, Baptist church. But myself, by the time I was 10, I had concluded that I, I wasn't really sure there was a God, and that I thought there was a pretty natural explanation for religion, or I assumed there was, and really became an agnostic, and that was the word I would use to describe myself. And that continued on for a few years, and then while I was still uh, a teenager, looking after having read a number of other religions, reading the Quran, reading from the Bhagavad Gita, uh, reading what I could about Buddhism, I decided to investigate Christianity. And when I did and began looking into, you know, when I read the Gospels and then read Acts, I became convinced, it's be a much longer story than we have time for, that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And the Lord used that to convict you of my sins and draw me to himself, and I became a Christian in high school. In high school. So when you went to yeah. Duke, you were already a believer. I was a very young Christian, but I was a Christian. I was I was so young, I was assuming all the religion faculty that I would meet there would be solid Christians. So I would I would share with them the things the Lord was doing in my heart, and then I would find out that they you know, were atheists. But anyway. Now, I want to just say a brief word, because I think it's an important part in your story about your work at Cambridge. You were involved in a church there, Eden Chapel, but you also did a Ph.D. dissertation on Richard Sibbs, S-I-B-B-E-S. Now, in case there are some listeners who don't know Richard Sibbs, tell us in two or three sentences 
who he was, and what you wrote about him. Uh, Anglican preacher from 1577, born, died 1635 in Cambridge in London, one of the most prominent preachers in the early 17th century. His works, especially the Bruised Reed, have been in print continually uh, for the last three and a half centuries, which, if the Lord tarries, may be more than can be said about most people whose yeah. uh, books we read. Uh, very edifying, a good minister of the comfort of God. Has his the work you did on Sibs? How has it impacted your own ministry? I'm going to talk about that in a minute. You're a pastor, but how how has that seen itself fulfilled in your own work? I think by nature I'm somewhat unsympathetic and severe, and um, Sibs is wonderfully tender and merciful and talks about the love of God, and he's just good. You know, that's a good point because we study these great people in history, and sometimes it's to sort of solidify us in our tendency. Sometimes it's to correct us and show us another way. So that that's very insightful. Well, I hope he's a balancer for me. Yeah. Now, I said you're a pastor. Another place where our two lives intersected was when you were called to the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington on Capitol Hill, about four blocks from the Supreme Court building. And I was privileged to join Don Carson and I think uh, Roger Nicole, maybe Carl Henry, at your installation service. I'll never forget it. Tell us about the church when you came and the church now and how you would describe its role in its ministry. Well, I want to, first of all, just again, give testimony to God's use of you in my life. I think you were the only one of my good friends who encouraged me to do this. Uh, everybody else told me not to, but you said, Mark, this is a good thing. You, sh- you should do this. You know, when I came, the church was a faithful church, but it was a, a church that was uh, composed of members who were in their 70s and 80s, mainly. It had shrunk from, you know, a thousand or more attending in the 1940s and 50s to uh, about 130 attending in the 1990s. Uh, and since they were largely elderly and lived in the suburbs, they had a very tenuous existence. They had discussed whether or not to sell the building. They believed the Bible. They were, as I say, faithful. Carl Henry had been a member there for 45 years since he moved to, or 40 years since he moved to Washington, taught Sunday school. He was one actually first told me about the church. So they called me in 93. I started in 94. And uh, we've just seen uh, very obvious kindnesses of God in conversions. The congregation, is, the building is full now. We've been able to you know, help turn around or start four or five other churches in the area. We're working on four or five more. Yeah, the congregation is now mainly young. Probably average age of the members is 30. Attenders probably 26 or 27. You know, the one thing I've known about you since I first met you is that you are an evangelist. Now, you're a pastor, you're a, lot, you're a teacher, you're a scholar, but you are an evangelist. You have the gift, and I think you see the importance of personally sharing your faith in Jesus Christ with unbelieving people and doing it in a way that you're able to get their attention and present to them the claims of Christ. Do you know that about yourself, that you are an no, evangelist? You've, you've said that before. I know I want to do the work of an evangelist, like Paul tells Timothy, I, I, you know, I think I always imagine if somebody has the gift of evangelism, they're going to see, you know, Billy Graham-like a lot more response than I've seen. But anyway, I certainly praise God. We get to tell the faithful story and praise God for whatever, you know, he brings about. You know, I love Billy Graham and all the great evangelists uh, who share the gospel in that way. I think God uses it. But, you know, you have the one-on-one gift. I, I, I'm thinking of a particular woman now who's a member of your church that I've gotten to know through my work at First Thing. She's on our board, who was a who was a complete unbeliever. Um, and through your witness, I'm sure not you alone, but God used you in a special way to uh, bring faith into her heart and life when it would totally unexpected. So you do have that gift. Uh, maybe maybe it's just the gift of uh, being a 
a Christ lover and contagious in your faith, but it works. Yeah, well, praise God. Yeah, that's a, I know the story you're talking about, and she and her husband now are here every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, just could not be more faithful. Fruit of the Spirit, Spirit obvious in their lives, and just an encouragement. You know, Timothy, if people want to hear stories like that, you can go to the T4G website, and we had videos at this last conference last month of people who had been converted. We had split screen, somebody who shared the gospel with the person, and the other side of the screen, the person who was converted. Mm. And, and she is, she's actually one of them. Ah. And there are just wonderful stories on there. Go to T4G.org and just look around for testimony videos. They're incredibly encouraging. I want to talk about T4G before we finish this conversation. That's a good, good word. Now, at your church, uh, there, there are two things that impress me, and I occasionally get to visit there and, and see you. Not long ago, I was there in Washington. I, you invited me by, and I went to your study, which is a beautiful book-lined uh, haven of uh, scholarship and spirituality, unlike almost any other pastor in a main city in America has, so you're, you're blessed to have it. But you use it. You, have a, you had a group of, I want to say, 10 or 12 students around your desk. Uh, y'all were studying stuff, pray together. You actually are involved in their lives in a mentoring relationship. And this is not the first time that's happened. That's a unique or at least a distinctive ministry God has given you and the church, of course, that is the base for this happening. I'm talking about your internship. You may have another name for it. Uh, tell us about what's what's going on there. Well, we call it our internship. And you can go to CAPBAP, our church website, C-A-P-B-A-P, .org under We Provide to find out more about it. We take uh, six men who are qualified for pastoral ministry. Sometimes they're sitting senior pastors, I and mean, we've had uh, guys older than me do it. We've had a, a pastor from Venezuela who took five months off. His church gave him a sabbatical, moved his family here. We provided housing. Uh, we've got a brother from Brazil coming this time. Right now in the program, we've got a guy from Malaysia and a guy from Kenya. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll take folks. We take six at a time, generally. We take them for five months. So we have an August to December class. We have a January to May class. We read over a set curriculum of books. They write short reflection papers. They have them due into me at 5.30 at the end of each day. So I've got two papers due into me today uh, at 5.30 uh, from the brothers. I've got a paper that they're supposed to turn in on um, uh, Jonathan Lehman's little book on church discipline. Mm-hmm. And a paper they're supposed to turn in on Jonathan Lehman's review of Tim Keller's book, Center Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll read those, and those will be the basis for an hour, uh, three-hour-long discussion. We had it this morning. We do it every Thursday morning. Timothy, you came to the end of one of those, where we talk through the things they'd read in the past week. And tell us what are some of the things on the reading list. Uh, the core books would be uh, Charles Bridges' The Christian Ministry, uh, Ian Murray's Reformation of the Church, uh, the book I edited on polity, Jonathan Lehman's book, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. But then there are many, many other books we read, everything from Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God is Small, to Colin Marshall and Tony Payne's The Trellis and the Vine, uh, to uh, my book, Deliberate Church, or Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, so all kinds of stuff. And by the way, just a little side note, if, if, if any of our listeners are not aware of the book by Charles Bridges, The Christian Ministry, I'd strongly encourage you to read that book. It's in print, I think it's at Banner of Truth that has it out. It is. Uh, One of the first books they printed. It's from a 19th century Anglican preacher, kind of dated in style, but wow, what tremendous content. He kind of goes to the heart of the of the soul of ministry. And it's It's kind of like Richard Baxter, only not quite as severe. Yeah. So yeah. so a little better for for delicate consciences. A little Sibsian uh focus. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> a little touch of Sibs thrown in. Okay, uh 
we've got to talk about the nine marks uh, because uh, that's again something you began after you became a pastor at Capitol Hill. It's an it's a ministry that has wide reach now. It involves publication, it involves conferencing, it involves media, all kinds of things. But I think it would be very helpful, Mark, if you could at least just run through what the nine marks are and what in the world you're trying to do with the nine marks ministries. Well, as much as possible, we're trying to uh, grab money from donors and churches who want to supply a very nonprofit ministry to get uh, to get sort of written and verbal advocates around the world among pastors. So that means all over America and all over the world. Like this week, I know there's a nine march worship going on in Albania. There's a nine march worship going on in Scotland, uh, and they're trying to advocate these simple marks of a healthy church: uh, expositional preaching, biblical theology. Uh, biblical understanding of the gospel, of conversion, of evangelism, of church membership, of church discipline, of discipleship and growth, and of church leadership. And uh, Crossway has been a wonderful partner with us. They published that book initially years ago. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it just grows out of the things that I was learning here as a pastor. And uh, we've seen, by God's grace, books that have come out from Nine Marks be translated into Italian, Spanish, uh, Tagalog, French, Chinese, Korean, I mean, lots of languages all over the place. And pastors are taking up these ideas. They're not new. It's not like a, it's not like a kind of baseball diamond illustration that I made up. It's just it's, it's traditional understanding of the church that's in the Bible. But there's, there's not a financial interest in advocating for it because it's, it's not my ideas. It's just stuff that nobody's talking about much, but that I think is actually at the very heart of what it means to have a sound church. You know, somebody once asked Vince Lombardi what it took to have a great football team. He said, you've got to be brilliant at the basics. And I think that's what you're trying to do with Nine Marks. Uh, they're not new, novel, uh, but they're basic and they're core uh, kinds of things. Uh, it's preaching, uh, the work of the, the local church. You put a lot of emphasis on the local church, don't you? I mean, that's the place where God is active in a in a powerful and very palpable way, biblically. And well, I'm a little scared that you and I are liars and headed to hell if the people that we live around all the time don't see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Mm. Yeah. And if it's just our friends or our family, they can kind of fudge for us. But if it's a local church, especially if that local church is made up of people not just like us, that can be a pretty powerful confirmation that, yeah, we are on the heavenly way. You know, we are headed to the celestial city. Now, I haven't mentioned it yet on the podcast, but I think we should, full disclosure, I am speaking to a pastor who is also a Baptist. And Baptists historically have put a strong emphasis on the local church, the covenanted community of baptized believers, and also on church discipline, which again is related to the nine marks focus. Would you say a little bit about church discipline? That's a difficult concept for a lot of people yeah. today. Well, yeah, I think I think this concept is more disi- more difficult for our, our Lutheran and Anglican brothers and sisters. I think it's not really that difficult for some of our, our Methodist brothers and sisters, and certainly not for our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. So you don't have to be a Baptist to understand the visible church with some of the same emphases. I think if, you know. I know you you guys are in, in the southeast of the U.S. There's a lot of PCA churches there. Yeah. Um, if you're 19 years old, that PCA church will probably treat you pretty similarly to the Southern Baptist Church if they're both healthy. In mm-hmm. other words, they're both going to want you to be professing faith and living up a life that reflects that. And if you're not, uh, the fact that you were baptized you know, at nine months in that PCA church or nine years in that Southern Baptist Church 
neither one would save you from being uh, potentially excommunicated if you're unrepentant for your sin, because those churches will probably love you enough to do something very countercultural, you know, to tell you that, listen, you're not living like a believer of Jesus. We're not, like the Roman Catholic Church might think, we're not condemning you, we're not cutting off the means of God's grace, because the, the fundamental means is your faith, your 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 belief in the promises of God. We're continuing to hold out those promises to you, but we're no longer uh, volunteering to you the signs that you publicly make that you have accepted that grace savingly, particularly the Lord's Supper. In that sense, a, a Pado Baptist church, uh, many Pado Baptist churches and Baptist churches would, would respond very similarly. And of course, discipline, if you read the early church fathers, this is a big deal, you know, in the Christian life. Uh, but uh, it's become, I think, confused with all kinds of things, uh, rigid legalism, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, have you ever excommunicated anybody at Capitol Hill? We regularly excommunicate people. So I would say that every year we would have, I don't know, out of 900 members, maybe three or four mm. would be excommunicated. Now, those are almost always for non-attendance. Uh-huh. They're not for the scandalous sins that you might associate excommunication you know, with, because yeah. what we find happens when somebody's really caught in sin, they tend just to hide away from the body. They tend to hide away from the church. Mm. So rather than having a contentious thing over adultery or whatever they're involved in, because we can't really say, we don't know, we don't do, we're not private investigators, you know, we, we deal mm. with what they volunteer to us. Uh, they're vo <laughs> joining the church is a voluntary matter. They choose to join us as a church, and they know we do this. But when they start not attending anymore, when they could, when they would be able to attend, and that breaks one of the most fundamental covenants they make with us, that in obedience to Hebrews 10.25, we, we do pledge that we will assemble regularly together as we have opportunity. And that lets us know that, that something is not right. 19th century Baptist writers would say it's sort of the, the mother sin. Uh, you know, that non-attendance, cutting yourself off from the body, lets you know that uh, something is not going well. Yeah. Now, now sometimes we'll investigate, and we'll find they're just going to another local evangelical church, and that is fine. Then they can yeah. join that church with our blessings, prayers, and encouragement. Yeah. But they need to join that church. They need to be a member of the church where they're, <clears throat> excuse me, where they're actually attending. Now, I wouldn't want any of our listeners to get the idea uh, that if you visited Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, it would be a kind of dour place, a very severe, very somber. I don't think it's that way. It's certainly not when I've been there. You've got a bunch of people there that really seem to love Jesus Christ. They sing lustily unto the Lord. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's a really a dynamic community. But undergirding it is this understanding of what the church is and what our responsibilities are. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's not a kind of commonly talked about combination day. I'd like to think there are a lot of churches that are like this. But, you know, the service is long. Mm -hmm. Many of our hymns are long. Our, many of our prayers are long. And your sermons are long. Um, the sermons are long. But, uh, you know, the service will be about two hours long in total. But the attendance is young, and it's packed. And I remember once years ago when John Piper was preaching, I knew John has a little bit more charismatic preferences and sort of worship style than I may. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was kind of preparing him about how he might find the place a little somber. And uh, after the service, he just he just rebuked me. <laughs> he just said, "Mark, this is one of the most joyful meetings I've yeah, ever been to." You yeah. know, that's my impression uh, when I've been there. So it's, yeah, 
it's an extremely happy place. And if you're ever in Washington, by the way, the doors are open at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. What time's your Sunday morning worship? 10.30 if you want to see. Get there early. And there's only one service per Sunday, right? Sunday morning, right? Yeah, but Timothy, what I hear that is you're just one church. Yes, that's correct. We are yeah. one local congregation. So, and you yeah. you, you kind of, uh, I won't don't have time to get into the theology of that, but you really believe this is a matter of principle, right? Yeah, yeah. So you can learn more about that from Mark's writings. Before we have to bring this uh, discussion to a close, I want you to say a little bit about Together for the Gospel. That's another, I don't want to call it a spin-off ministry. That's not, that's too uh, demeaning. It's it's a phenomenal ministry. That, but, yeah. but again, it was kind of born in your heart and that of some other brothers. Uh, tell us about Together for the Gospel. What is it? What's it doing? It's a pastor's conference that meets uh, so far every other year since 2006 in April in Louisville, uh, Kentucky. Uh, Al Moeller, Lincoln Duncan, C.J. Mahaney, and I uh, were the four, together for the gospel, that uh, thought it would be good to get together, invite some others to come and preach, and then just try to encourage pastors uh, across denominational lines. And, uh, yeah, the Lord has blessed it. Ian Murray was there this last April, and Ian is a, a critic of many things in modern American evangelicalism. And I encouraged him to write something up honestly about the conference, telling him that I would welcome criticism. Mm. And he just sent me last week the article he's going to publish in the June Banner of Truth magazine, and it's really encouraging. Wonderful. He he, he sees it as a, as a real move of the Spirit of God and was very encouraging uh, at signs of that there. So I think Jonathan Lehman put it well. It's not This is clearly not the culmination of a revival, but maybe it's some of the kindlings of revival. It's mm. well put. And if you want to read uh, Mark Dever, you have many books in print. I wouldn't even begin to, but I would start with, I think, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Yeah. Yeah, if you're a preacher, you want to just read some normal sermons of mine, 12 Challenges Churches Face, just goes through the book of First Corinthians. The only one I really sat down and wrote as a book, because most of my sermons are the gospel and personal evangelism, yeah. where, you know, like you say, Timothy, I do have a burden for evangelism, and I was trying to think, what do you give a brand-new Christian just to teach them about evangelism. I couldn't think of a great book to do that. I, a lot of books I love on evangelism, so I just sat down and wrote one called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. Two other of your books that I think are terrific, Promises Kept and Promises Made, where you go through the whole canon of Scripture, and essentially you give a message on a book, right? Yeah, it was, a, it was some of the most difficult sermons I've ever preached, but just wonderful for my soul. I try not to give a lecture and not a message on this favorite verse or something, but I really try to get the weight and balance of Lamentations, of Isaiah, of Luke. And, you know, I try to preach a sermon on that book that gives you that message. And so I preach them over the space of 10 years here. I would do like a, a four-week series in the Gospels or a, a four-week series in the Major Prophets, things like that. Fantastic. Well, listen, my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been the Reverend Dr. Mark Dever. He is the pastor, the senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, a wonderful man of God that God is using in a tremendous way across his church in America and beyond. He and his wife, Connie, have two adult children. They live in Washington. That's where the church is. And uh, if you don't know Mark Dever, uh, go read his stuff, go visit his church, uh, and pray for his work that it would grow and deepen and increase. Mark, thank you for this conversation. Thank you, Tony. I pray the Lord will continue to bless your ministry and Beeson's ministry. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, beesondivinity.com. 
Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.